So I put all my heart and soul to the extent of my family suffering. Oh, yeah, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too, perhaps, may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Hello and welcome to another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, brought to you by Man Marking. My name is Dan Reed, and today we'll be taking another look back at an example of mental ill health in football from yesteryear. You'll be listening to this on the 27th of November. I'm actually recording it on the 25th of November. We're 15 years on from George Best's tragic death, and it's probably, in a way, quite apt that Diego Maradona's death was announced today as well. Another complicated mercurial genius that sadly died. Two men that were very similar both on and off the pitch. And Maradona actually described George Best by saying, he inspired me when I was young. He was flamboyant and exciting and able to inspire his teammates. I actually think we are very similar players, dribblers, who were able to create moments of magic. And that's exactly how Diego Maradona and George Best will both be remembered as people who were able to create moments of magic. Tell me, Sir Matt, what is it that George has that singles him out as one of the world's greatest players? Well, in every era, there is geniuses come along, whatever phase of life you're in. But in every century, a super genius comes along. And uh, this is what George Best is in football today. Uh, if you just look at the two feet there, they, they, they pass the ball, they dribble the ball, they shoot the ball, and of course, he's got this appetite for the game. He's got all the quality of balance, which is phenomenal. And again, he's very good in the air, very good in the air, and a tremendous heart. It's uh, Enrique de Maradona. A different class. Different class. Maradona, Diego Mando Maradona, is on the World Cup pedestal. A goal for the gods. Banks being driven left, and was that a foul? The whistle hasn't gone. Best, and a foul given. Fascinating piece of football thinking by Best. Here comes Best again. What a player this boy is, he's got another. And now George Best, Bonds after him, and still George Best. Ball going, cutting one side of Lampard, sending him the wrong way, and still George Best. And it's still George Best with a shot that had Grotier down. And that really was the first piece of real George Best we've seen. West Ham penalty area. But O'Neill to George Best again. Getting past Robson. Still with Best. Anyone go? And a goal! 
Right in action right away. Best going through the middle. He's on for five. There it is. Oh, Georgie Best. But I think football, uh, the film stars are on the screen, but you don't see them as much as football players. They're mm. in the open. Mm. I mean, I think the film stars have got the dolls and all, you know, after them. Mm. And possibly more than the football players, but it's secretive. I mean, George Best, everything he does is uh, publicised. Mm. And I feel sorry for him. Mm. Uh, very nice little fella chat, actually. Mm. Uh, but he has been, uh, uh, been with, uh, well, allegedly with many, many girls. Mm. They've chased after him, mm. let's be fair. You mean he can't help it? <laughs> well, he's a good-looking boy, he's a good player, he's in front of the public. Uh, they're all after him. In order to tell this story properly, I've enlisted the help of two guests. So let's introduce them to you. First up is Barry Schmeitzer. When I spoke to Barry over Zoom at his home in South Africa, he was sat in a room festooned with Manchester United memorabilia. My name is Barry Schmeiser. I live in Johannesburg, um, where I've lived for most of my life. And you can hear the broad South African accent. But believe it or not, I was born in London. But my parents left um, when I was very young, just a couple of years of age. I've been a lifelong Man United fan since the age of six. So if you do the math, I have been a fan for 56 years. So that tells you what my age is. Passionate United fan, always will be. Um, whether times are good or bad, we've got to take the bad with the good. And in my lifetime as a Man United supporter, head and shoulders, the greatest player that I've ever seen and had the privilege to meet was George Best. Joining Barry was Rob Blanchett. Rob is a Manchester United fan, has been since he was a child. He's also a renowned journalist, away for places such as the Bleacher Report. And in a previous role, Rob was the producer of the Stan Collymore show. So he knows a thing or two about some of the difficulties the footballers can face off the field. Yeah, hi, I'm Rob Blanchett. I'm a sports journalist for the last 10 years and I'm a Manchester United fan. And when did you start supporting Man United, Rob? Uh, I started supporting the club in 1985. I'm a third generation United fan. Uh, my granddad and my mum are United fans. And uh, it was a cup final against Everton. 1-0, um, Norman Whiteside's left-footed strike into the bottom corner past Neville Southall. And I was sold for life. 
that's really interesting. So it was your was it your mum then more that, that got you into football? Is your mum a big football fan? Yeah, yeah, she's from Manchester and uh, we lived in London uh, throughout my childhood, but United were always part of our lives. I was always a United fan. And it was 85, really, that sealed the deal. I'd watched football before, obviously, but as a, as a young kid. Um, but that moment in the cup final was really the first moment of magic. And I think Whiteside's goal against an Everton team that was probably the best team in the world at that point yeah. uh, to beat them and to defeat them in that, that cup final at Wembley was very special. My first protocol was to ask Rob and Barry, what was their first memories of seeing George Best? For Barry, it would obviously have been in the 60s during the time that George Best was playing. And for Rob, it was a little bit later on in the 80s at the the tail end of George Best's career and in the, in the shadow of his later years. Well, I went to a lot of football matches locally here in South Africa. But my first exposure to the English game was in 1967. And in fact, the, the first game that I ever went to was a Spurs versus Chelsea game in which Jimmy Greaves was playing. So that's how far back it dates. <laughs> but we then went to watch Man United. I watched George Best playing for United in a game November of 1967 at Stamford Bridge. And I'm cursed with a good memory. And I actually remember a couple of moves in the game, seeing him get the ball and kind of backheel it. You know, he did all these cool things that nobody else did. And of course, every time he got the ball, there was a buzz in the stadium. So that, that was it for me. He was the man. And what was the what would would you kind of say was was different about football at that time as a as a you know as going to the match and and, and standing in the, uh, in the stands? Well, um, picture this: I, I went there. So we're talking. I'm nine years old, ten years old. My father's taking me to the game. Um, it's mainly standing. Very few seats. Um, we couldn't afford to sit in the seating, so you're standing on the terraces. Of course, as a small kid. You've got to either be held by your dad or you've got to sit on those kind of metal rails. Mm. So I just remember my backside and my feet being numb at the end of a game in a, a London winter. Um, a very, very different experience from nowadays where they're private boxes. Um, half the crowd are in designer suits because they're um, guests or sponsors. But of course, the diehards are still there. And, of course, we are in all-seater stadiums. So a very, very different experience, very different. The other thing that I remember in those days is there weren't many women and kids at games. There was a lot of crowd trouble that, particularly in the 1970s. So a very, very different experience back then. But I, you know, having watched this football live in the UK in 1967, I went through a long hiatus before I returned to the UK in 1983, um, to watch a lot of games. And what, what was the reason for that, Barry? Well, 1983, I had, um, I, I'm a medical doctor, and in, at the end of 1982, I'd finished my internship, and back at that time in South Africa, the law was that you had to do national service. So I had a six-month gap between finishing my internship and doing my national service. And what a lot of guys used to do would be to travel to Europe in particular. And um, I went off with a buddy of mine. Um, we traveled through Europe, but spent quite a bit of time in the UK. And um, at the time, playing for Man United was Gary Bailey. 
who of course had a very strong South African connection because Gary had played in South Africa. He'd spent most of his life here. And what I did was I um, looked up his dad in something called a telephone directory, which a lot of our young listeners or viewers would not know what it is. <laughs> and um, I found his dad, a guy called Roy Bailey, who in fact played for Ipswich, and asked him if he thought I could go and watch Gary training at Man United. And he put me in touch with him. And I met Gary at the cliff, the training ground. And um, Gary organized tickets for a few games while we were there. And that was incredible. So we got to meet a lot of the players as one could in those days by just rocking up at the training ground. And I mean, back in those days, with the exception of the day before match day, any member of the public could actually rock up at the training ground. And in fact, speaking to some of my mates who are several years older than I, who experienced Man United playing in the 50s, they tell me as kids, the players sometimes used to travel on the same bus to the games. The players used to carry their boots in a plastic or paper bag. Um, one fellow I know had Duncan Edwards buy him an orange before a game. <laughs> now, imagine that today. Just couldn't so, happen. You know, there was no doubt that I grew up within the shadow of George Best, knowing everything about him and that he was this kind of archetypal hero for Manchester United, uh, a guy that kind of transcended football. And um, yeah, you know, in the, obviously in the 68 final within the European Cup and all the way through that period, George Best was a hero and that was fed to me as a child. And I, 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 I grew up in that period in the 80s where United weren't successful and we did look back rather than forward. And looking back to our heroes of Best Law and Charlton was something that we did regularly. And it, it was a time when, I don't know if you remember, the, a videotape was going around back in those days called 101 Great Goals. And everyone seemed to own it. And George Best and Bobby Charlton were on that. So for me, that was kind of my route into seeing them. But also watching videotape of the 68 uh, European Cup final was a big part of my childhood. Uh, in those days, you know, you had to kind of do your research so you could be told word of mouth about players, even going back maybe three or four years before, depending on how young you were at that point. But you had to kind of dig to find out a bit about them because you, you only had videotape. You know, you didn't have the internet. You had no kind of instant access to to files of of knowledge you know you, you either read it in a book and you kind of read that book a hundred times uh, or you just didn't know it or you were kind of told by a parent or someone in your family so for me you know a lot of it was built on legend especially when we talk about best um, because I would go to Old Trafford as a kid and kind of sit on the concrete outside as a 12 year old and just read you know read books and stuff that I would take to games and fanzines and and it was still filled with things that happened over the past 20 years, obviously including the all the up-to-date stuff, but there was a lot more about maybe, the history was maybe as part of the culture of now and the future than I would say is at the moment. Now I think football moves so fast, everyone is looking till tomorrow. Um, and, and maybe the frustration, especially as a United fan, you see that fans get more frustrated in terms of how they consume football now through the media than they ever did before. Well, I think that... What one has got to remember is that in George Best's time, the kit was different, the ball was heavier, the pitches were like mud baths, the tackle from behind was not illegal. Every time he got the ball, the opposition defenders used to try and break his legs and he used to just come back for more. 
So for me, uh, he had an unbelievable center of gravity. His balance was absolutely fantastic. Incredibly speedy, incredibly brave, fantastic with both feet, could beat a man. In fact, he enjoyed beating a man and then coming back and beating him again. Strong in the air, as brave as anything, and a complete all-round player. And when you think about it, he played predominantly on the wing. And as a winger for United, he scored 179 goals. He made 470 appearances for United. So he was scoring, he was averaging better than a goal every three games. He was top scorer in almost every season that he played. So he was just a phenomenon for me, an absolute phenomenon. The greatest player that I've ever seen, without a doubt. And did you know at the time that you were watching somebody that would, you know, stand the test of time, would go on to be one of the greatest of all time? I think we appreciated that at the time he was arguably the best footballer in the world. Obviously, what we didn't realise was what would happen with his career thereafter. Um, But when watching him, one certainly appreciated that he was the greatest player, certainly in the English league and arguably, like I say, on on the planet, that is for sure. Well, growing up, I was always told that George Best was the greatest player of all time. So we always used to hear about Pelé, but Pelé always felt a bit exotic and a bit far away. You know, he didn't play in European club football, did, certainly didn't have any connections with English football. So for us, you know, we were just told this legend of George Best all the time. And then you'd see these snippets of videotape about him. Obviously, the background for George Best was that, you know, he was dubbed the, the, the L Beatle or the fifth Beatle. And that was in 1966. And that was after Manchester United beat Benfica in Portugal 5-1 in the European Cup. George Best scored twice that day. He was 19 years old. And that was the start of really George Best, a superstar. You know, he was dubbed El Beatle by the Portuguese press. And it was something that the British press then picked up on. And from that moment onwards, you know, all the way through his career, and don't forget his career at United ended very early in, in his kind of mid to late 20s uh, when he decided to retire. Uh, it was a kind of incredible period for football in terms of England winning the World Cup that year and this explosion really where a working class sport played by working class boys, we suddenly found these guys were were heroes and superstars and had access to maybe marketplaces that they didn't have before. And if, we see that now, don't we? We see that the modern Premier League footballer is you know, very aware of their branding and where they're going. And we have more contact with them in terms of social media than we ever have before. His many feel that the most iconic performance he put in for United was in the um, European Cup um, against Benfica in Lisbon, where Benfica were essentially undefeated at home in European competitions. And he absolutely ravaged them on the night. He slaughtered them and he got the moniker El Beatle after that. Mm. He came back to Manchester sporting the sombrero And of course, the media loved him and everything that he did got highlighted in the media. I don't think he could go anywhere without a trail of journalists. Um, He bought this fancy house in Cheshire that he kind of mentioned later on that it was almost like living in a goldfish bowl (laughs) because people used to come and camp on his lawn, um, flashy cars, women, etc. But, you know, at that point in the sort of in, in his halcyon years, where United had won the league in 65 and 67, they'd won the European Cup in 68, 
Um, they were runners-up in the league in 68. You know, that was his heyday. So Moore was concentrated on his on-field exploits. But of course, as soon as things started going a little bit pear-shaped, it was a better story for the journalist to highlight his off-field antics than his on-field antics. And we're well aware that journalists today can make or break you, that's for sure. And back then as well. George Best moved to Manchester as a teenager from Belfast. When Best was discovered by Manchester United scout Bob Bishop, he sent a telegram to Manchester United manager at the time, Matt Busby, which read, I think I found you a genius. In 1963, George Best made his debut for Manchester United, which was just five years on from the Munich air disaster, which still cast a shadow across the club that was decimated in that tragedy. From then on, the rest is history, and Best went on to become one of the all-time great Manchester United players. Nowadays, we're used to footballers as celebrities. You think of David Beckham, Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who instantly spring to mind. And their status in life off the pitch becomes almost as significant to their reputation as the work on the pitch. But back in the 1960s and 1970s, best reputation and fame off the pitch was unique. Oh, completely unique. Like I don't think it really was a player of his generation at that point, especially in England, that had this global appeal. You know, we, we still lived in a time where the world was local. You know, you didn't really look across the channel to for your superstars, even though you knew film stars and things like that. You know, you looked at home and he was the first person really to transcend that and to go from the back pages of the newspapers to the front pages. Um, it, it was a hugely important figure in terms of the, the moulding of professional football going forward, especially in England. But he, he had this kind of global appeal. And even now when you go abroad and maybe we talk to older football fans, the first person they talk about generally is George Best and the second person is Bobby Charlton. They're the two people that people straight away jump upon because they had this hero status and they were superstars of their day. And then when you're obviously first started to go, Rob, to Old Trafford, you first start going and watching Man United and you're saying there about, you know, at that time, they're not the successful club that they were in the era before and the era afterwards. And obviously that sort of shadow of Best and, and Lord and Charlton are, are kind of looming over the club. Were you aware of the stuff off the field with Best in the way that we are today in terms of his issues with addiction and, and, and his kind of turbulent lifestyle that he was he was kind of having away from the field yeah I was but I in many ways and it is still the same today I find is that it was celebrated you know the fact that he was this superstar that he was kind of this figure that could go out and go on his uh, long drinking sessions and was well known for it and turning up at games after a night out at a club uh, to go on a football pitch and score a goal. Those fables are not actually true. You know, they were, they're just kind of the way that it's been passed down. But at that point, I, you know, I remember in the 80s that George Best was, you know, remembered as this kind of maverick. But he at that point, he was a figure of fun. And, you know, he went on that famous Terry Wogan interview where he was completely drunk. And there wasn't really sympathy. And what I remember there was... The, the story was that George Best goes on TV drunk. There was no talk about whether he was an alcoholic or his mental health or the reasons. It was just the action. Uh, and that's what I grew up with. So the action really was that George Best was a fantastic footballer, but all the other things that went with it and, you know, being with a Miss World and kind of all the patter and banter that, that kind of Best would produce himself, 
that was really what he was he was famous for, and there certainly was no sympathy, I think, in the press for it. It it wasn't. Yet he'd be mobbed wherever he'd go. He had a clothing boutique in Manchester. He had owned a nightclub. Later on, he endorsed all sorts of products from football boots to cereal to sausages. And of course, he was uh, the darling of the women. In fact, his mate, Mike Summerby, who um, of course played for Man City, um, George um, co-owned the clothing boutique with him. And George was the best man at Summerby's wedding. In fact, Summerby said afterwards, that's probably the only wedding that he'd been to where the bride had more eyes for the best man than for the groom. George Best left Manchester United in 1974, and over the next nine years, he played for 16 different clubs, including Stockwell County, Fort Lauderdale Strikers, the Los Angeles Aztecs, Hong Kong Rangers, and Brisbane Lions, before eventually retiring in 1983. During that period, he also played for a team called the Jewish Guild in South Africa, Johannesburg, and this is where Barry Schmeitzer met his hero for the first time in person. And, you know, on a personal note, in 1974, he actually, after he'd finished at United, he came and played in Johannesburg for a few weeks. And there was a game, he played for a local club called Jewish Guild. And they played a game against a side that's based in Cape Town called Hellenic. Bobby Moore was guesting for Hellenic at that time. And the two teams met at the biggest football stadium in Johannesburg, where usually the crowds were a paltry sort of few thousand um, such was his draw that the place was bursting at the rafters. But by then, you know, he was not as fit as he was. But I used to go and watch him training every evening. And I kid you not, he'd get the ball from his goalkeeper and he'd dribble upfield beating eight or nine players. So it was just, it was spectacular to watch. And you mentioned before we started recording that you had the opportunity to meet him as well in person whilst he yes. was in Johannesburg. I- Yes, I met him on on that visit. And in fact, um, when I look back, one of my biggest regrets in life was not having a camera at that meeting. In fact, I met him a couple of times, um, but I've got a whole bunch of things that he autographed for me. And he was with a a friend stroke business partner at the time, a fellow called Malcolm Wagner, who I've met up with on numerous occasions on my returns to Manchester. And I mean, you know, he's written a book about George, um, about the, the stories, kind of some of the off field stuff, just and, you know, I think that when we look back, we've got to look back on a on just one of the greatest players ever, if not the greatest, yeah. who had an affliction that unfortunately didn't get well managed in retrospect. During the 70s and the 80s, George Best was one of the most recognisable faces, not just in the United Kingdom, but all over the world. But behind the glamour, the fame, the extravagance of it all, was a much darker side. Behind all of that, George Best was spiralling, as his drinking and other aspects of his life got out of control. He describes this time in an interview on his 50th birthday with Michael Parkinson in 1996. Except the fact that the, the, the club was doing well. I didn't have to get up in the morning and go training. Uh, but I was becoming bored, so alcohol was sort of relieving the boredom, I suppose. Uh, I started gambling. Uh, I was looking for anything to, to sort of fill the gap that, that football had left. And uh, obviously, it was never going to fill the gap. And so for three years, I was doing the same thing every night and every day. You were bored, weren't <clears throat> you? Bored to death, yeah, because mm. I was missing the one thing that, uh, that gave, me a, gave me a high. And I was looking for other things. The only thing I didn't try was drugs. 
but I suppose alcohol, if you're talking about drugs, that is a drug anyway. Mm. And the gambling started to become a little bit of a drug as well. I couldn't stop gambling. Uh, I didn't want to. I couldn't stop drinking, and I didn't want to. And the problem was I didn't have to answer to anybody. Because uh, I didn't get up for training. I didn't have to go out and perform in front of 50, 60,000 people uh, every week. Uh, but uh, the boredom was killing me. And, uh, and, and so was the booze. Well, at this period, I mean, what, what amount were you drinking? Did you recollect? Oh, for the call? It, it just, it was a... The glass never emptied. It was as simple as that. Did you start when it, uh, for breakfast? Uh, as soon as I'd get up, yeah. Uh, which was usually late. Uh, and there was always somewhere. I mean, if you wanted to drink, you'd always find somewhere. The licensing laws were the old ones then, but there was always somewhere. And uh, uh, the funny thing was that I never drank at home, and still, and still don't. Uh, but uh, I'd go out and find somewhere, and uh, as soon as I got up, uh, skip breakfast straight into the alcohol. And it could be, you know, leave the casino at five, and there was always a late drinker somewhere. So it could be six, seven in the morning, and go home, sleep. And get up in the morning, the first thing you thought about was going and having a drink. But it's another interview that strikes me the most. You can find it on YouTube, the full the full clip's on there. It's from 1990 and it's with the late Terry Wogan. And in the years subsequent to George's death, it's been seen as a startling insight into the understanding of both alcoholism and mental health more broadly. It was almost, there was almost an element of humour to it. Mm. And as you say, nowadays that would absolutely not be tolerated whatsoever. Um, different times for sure, that, that is for sure. Um, he, he unfortunately appeared on a couple of programs drunk mm. um, and you know it's just it's awful to watch those clips are widely available on YouTube and they, they, they don't make for good viewing I think if you look in the modern day if you look I think in many respects Paul Gascoigne is an example of, of a similar situation um, Tony Adams upon his own admission yet there was an outpouring of sympathy and help for these guys Back in the 70s, the approach was completely different. It was kind of fend for yourself. And it was almost, as I say, looked upon as kind of, was almost a joke, which it certainly was nothing of the sort. I watched it live. I, I watched it live on TV. I was a kid. And I remember watching it. And I, like, if you compared it to now, like let's say that we, you know, it was a modern day footballer who was allowed to go on to a TV show like that and completely embarrass himself that's not that wouldn't happen today a producer would not allow someone who is inebriated to that extent to go on live tv it was you know wogan used to go out i think every night at seven o'clock or something and it was prime time tv so kids obviously were up like myself and it was just normalized drinking the stigma behind it it, it wasn't there it wasn't something that was illuminated so you know it, it, it is shocking and when you see that interview now i think people kind of are uh, uh, bamboozled by the fact that it actually happened. But that was the George Best that we knew in the 80s. You know, he was considered a guy that lived in a pub. You know, he was this great ex-footballer, but he was an alcoholic. There was no thoughts about helping him. And we saw this repeated with Paul Gascoigne. And we see it today. You know, they're very, very similar figures in terms of being mavericks, but ultimately with their own mental health issues and challenges that fed their alcoholism. And, you know, unfortunately with Gaza, we still see that today where he's made a figure of fun. But I think there's more awareness now that he needs help and there are lots of players in that position. Well, in the 80s and in through to the 90s, there was no such thing as mental health. It didn't exist. 
You know, if you had, you know, if you had depression, people thought that you just felt sad and that was the end of that. Go and make yourself happy. And some of the ways that I think in kind of the working class roots that I come from, the ways to go and make yourself happy were to go to the pub and get drunk or go and watch a football match. Those things have not gone away today. But I think what we see now is that there is an understanding about the process of maybe, say, alcoholism or drug taking and the links maybe with mental health. We join those dots together much more co cohesively now. In the 80s and 90s, it wasn't a thing. So, you know, talking about George Best as the example and then into Paul Gascoigne, you know, those two characters, they were allowed to spiral because society just saw it as something that was normal. Um, you know, men were allowed to do this. Again, it wasn't a, a female thing. It was very much geared towards men and that men could go to the pub or drink alcohol, get incredibly drunk and solve their problems. And that was the 1980s in a nutshell. And unfortunately, George Best was a product of that in terms of the success that he had in the 60s and the 70s, and then maybe, say, the end of his football career. He was always remembered as this kind of king and and he rode that really until the very very end when it was too late and you know he obviously you know he died of um, multiple organ fa failure but obviously had a um, a transplant before that and at, I remember at that point you know the big sales pitch was you know George Best has as a transplant and he's he's great and he's going to live on for another ten years and and everything is fantastic but that unfortunately wasn't the case and uh, he went straight back to the pub and unfortunately drank himself into an early grave and that is you know one of the most tragic things about him at the time they did they did a couple of documentaries that i think today you would call reality tv but back in those days it wasn't it was like this george best kind of you know with his partner talking about the troubles that he'd had and you know and 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 maybe the progress of that last 10 years of his life um but today you know you know it wasn't celebrated then at that point but today it would be some kind of reality TV show where there would be 20 episodes following George Best around everywhere and talking about his journey. And, and I think maybe that's what we've done uh, in some contexts that we do have more understanding about mental health issues now. But there is also maybe a commercialization of these issues where we see it in reality TV as it's something still being acceptable in society today. I think very much so. And, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of work being done on the genetics of alcoholism. George's late mother, unfortunately, was an alcoholic as well. And, you know, it's just, I think that he had the wrong people around him. Um, I think it was kind of cool to be in the company of George Best. Let's go out and get plastered. Um, and as, as I say, I think that there was the wrong, he was in the wrong company and the wrong advice being given to him. But the problem is it's such a serious disease that it's, it, it's so difficult to control. And he was completely out of control, um, certainly in the latter part of his life, for sure. Part, part, yeah. Partly, like we're talking about the, the Terry Wogan interview that we just said there. You know, I remember at that point, not feeling disappointed in him, but kind of thinking you know it, it's sad that this guy's got to this stage in his life and that was the general opinion about George Best in the 80s was that he'd gone so far off the rails that it was best just to leave him where he was leave him in the pub drinking and and it was a joke you know in the sense of you know George Best is, is an alcoholic and and ha 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 you know and people were kind of 
just laughing at him and with him. And you were kind of like, mm, you know, maybe he needs help. But that wasn't what you thought in the 80s. It wasn't the next natural step, which I think came in the 90s. You know, there was this uh, in new lad era in the 90s. But also in that time came a more rounded approach to things like mental health. And it's maybe the start of the journey that we're still on today. Um, and George Best really didn't get the kind of, uh, the, the, I would say the word support, but but just the understanding of what he needed at that point. And I, and I think Paul Gascoigne is in the same place today, even though now we do talk about mental health and we, we see the effects and we call it mental health now. Back in Best's day and in the 80s, we didn't say it was anything to do with mental health. We just saw alcoholism was a choice. You know, it wasn't a disease. It was a choice, your choice to go in a pub, you know, get your pint glass and down a pint and get on with it. And there was nothing about why people did it. It was just an activity, a pastime that people in Britain did and still do today. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we, uh, the public probably saw all of that through the prism of mainstream media and, 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 and a lot of it through sort of tabloids, newspapers. How much influence did the sort of the, the media angle the tabloids angle have on the way that best was perceived to the sort of general public oh everything 100 percent. the sun the beginning and the end that's it you know that, that's what i remember from that period was uh you know my mum would go out and buy the sun every day and you would look at it it would be there and then it would end up in the bin or end up as fish and chip paper. Um, but that's what that's how you consumed your news. You know, yeah, I, I didn't sit and watch a television, and watch the 10 o'clock news. Sometimes I did as a kid, but I wasn't really that interested. But because we didn't have anything like social media, you got all of your news from the front page and the back page of The Sun. And it was specifically that newspaper. You know, it, there were other newspapers, of course, but the polarization of opinion came through that publication and it was all powerful and that you know that's why the sun won elections for the tories over and over again because they would pump out that information so with george best you know he was as i said a guy that um, kind of went from the back pages to the front but his whole life were in, was on those front pages and in the in the center in the center spreads because he he sold newspapers he was a hugely popular figure and it was and you know he was a player that transcended a football club so it wasn't just Manchester United fans that were interested in him you know there were other players of the day you know like your Rodney Marshes and similar players who were, who were kind of considered playboys but there was no doubt that George Best was the David Beckham of his day he had no he had no equal and it was the newspapers that put that perception out of him every day of the week and I can remember it I can remember seeing it every day when you see it every day as a kid it becomes almost hypnotic um now we have social media and and it's it's a different a different kettle of fish maybe with twitter and how it works but it's the same thing it's repetition kind of pushing a narrative how did that george best was diagnosed with severe liver damage in march 2000 caused primarily due to his alcohol addiction this ultimately led to a liver transplant in august of 2002 in the early era of liver transplantation Liver transplants were never offered to people who had alcoholic liver disease. They, they, were not, they were not put on transplant lists because it was felt that they were likely to default and run into the same habits. Um, that subsequently changed. But unfortunately, you know, he, he, res, he reverted to drinking. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, there's only going to be one outcome with respect to that. Yeah. And he was, he was almost portrayed, I think, as... as 
in, in, in a way causing his own problems rather than you know yeah. the the, the yeah. victim of, a, of an addiction yeah. yes the thing is you know to to adopt a stance on somebody kind of a tough love you've got alcoholism man up and deal with it you you're not going to win that way you're really not going to win that that way um but there are people far more expert than i in terms of giving an op opinions um on on that aspect of things but it requires so much effort from family from the medical profession from the paramedical profession and of course from the individual to have the desire not to drink because mm. if the desire is there and it's kind of you know bugger you i'm going to do as i want you're fighting a losing battle uh the old problem, the drink problem is always going to be there. I mean, I don't kid myself anymore. I used to think, I'll beat it one day. I don't, I don't worry about it now. If I beat it, I beat it. If I don't, I don't. And uh, I, I'd rather think like that than drive myself crazy worrying about it. Following the transplant, I think there was some hope amongst Man United fans, amongst football fans, and amongst anyone who admired and, and loved George Best that perhaps he would make a recovery from his addictions. But... Sadly, that wasn't to be the case, and, and Best would continue drinking. And In 2005, he was admitted to intensive care at Cromwell Hospital in London, suffering from a kidney infection. On the 20th of November, the British tabloid newspaper, which Rob talked about earlier, News of the Wales, published a picture of Best, which was actually at his own request, showed them in his hospital beds suffering with jaundice, along with a warning about the dangers of alcohol, with his message, don't die like me. In the early hours of the 25th of November 2005, treatment was stopped. And later that day, aged just 59, George Best died. Throughout the day, fans have gathered at Old Trafford to pay their respects and lead their tributes. Some remembering the days when they'd watched George Best play for Manchester United. Others from later generations. Across the country, fans today paid their own tributes to mark the passing of a sporting legend. At Wolves, there was a minute's applause. Other clubs held the more traditional minute's silence. And in Belfast, where George Best will be laid to rest next week, there were long queues to sign books of condolence. Uh, we're just very moved about George. It's always been a great memory. I actually went to school with him, so I have some nice memories. At Old Trafford, many fans now feel that when the flowers and shirts have gone, there should be some form of permanent memorial here. Well, for us at United, there was a huge outpouring because, you know, when you lose, you know, a hero of the football club, a guy who's so synonymous with the badge, it's it's incredibly emotional. You know, we still have our links to the Busby Babes. You know, they obviously perished in that plane crash in 58 but still very much in our thoughts and a, a part of our football club and it's the same for George Best you know there's a statue of him the Holy Trinity outside Old Trafford with Best Law and Charlton and you see their faces every time you go to a football match they're still very much part of the club but I remember when he died and you know I, I, I cried I remember crying because you know he, he he was a big part of the story of the football club that I'd grown up idolizing and we knew what George Best was and what he meant. We didn't think in that moment about his alcoholism or or how his life spiraled. Um, but he'll always be a football, you know, a hero of the football club, one of those iconic players that maybe only five or six United players that I can remember in my lifetime and, and before really have that status with with. 
football fans. And again, like I said, you know, when you go abroad and when I work abroad and I talk to people about football and I talk about Manchester United, you know, George Best is one of those names that comes straight up because he is an icon. He will always be remembered. Well, I think as Man United fans, we were very, very sad. Very, very sad. And, you know, in, in the years prior to his death, um, George did quite a lot of work as, as a pundit. And he did quite a lot of sort of after-dinner speaking. He was an extremely articulate man, and he spoke beautifully and had a great knowledge of the game. Um, so, you know, th there was that aspect to his life as well. But as, as United fans, we were absolutely gutted with respect to his death. But if you look at football on a worldwide basis, when he died, all around the world, there were minutes of silence or minutes of applause. There were banners all over the world in every country paying homage and respect. You know, if you're a football fan, you, you know, you, you've got to respect what greatness is, no matter if that player plays for your most bitter rivals, you respect greatness. And that was George Best. Um, I mean, this, the, there's so many stories ab about him, about opposition managers when giving their team talks or whatever and being asked, you know, how do we, how do we combat George Best kind of saying, well, you know, just stay away from him or you'll never, you'll never stop him. Or, <laughs> you know, there were, there, there, there were, I remember there were death threats against him once. Um, I, I think there, there were death threats post, um, posted. I don't know if it was IRA related, whatever it was. And I remember it was a game against Newcastle, and I think he scored the winning goal. He said that he was scared, so he made sure he was running all the game. And the opposition manager said, well, we should have had somebody take him out during the game. You know, <laughs> That was the mark of the man, that he was just so different from anybody else on the field. And if anybody had an apt surname, it was he, because he was simply the best. Do you think, then, that, that, that we've learned anything from... Likes it best and the, and the, and gas going more laterally. I think we've learned things academically, yeah. So we can look at stuff and say, ah, we know this now. So we join the dots. This means that. So we can join the dots between George Best and Paul Gascoigne academically. What I will say is this: Paul Gascoigne is still a figure of fun today. You know, he still has the same issues that he'd had for the last twenty years. You know. Do, does the public or the press or whoever want to help Paul Gascoigne? I'm not sure that they do because they still want, you know, Gaza, the lad who will tell the jokes, who will give the crack, talk about the 1990 World Cup and be that person. And they're happy for him to maybe sacrifice his own mental health for their entertainment. And I, and I think I still see that. And, and I, I see the parallels between Best and Gascoigne, you know, as, as someone who maybe like lived through it and saw what happened to both of them through the press, you know, the, the parallels are are striking because I think with Gaza, you know, we've known that he's been unwell for a really, really long time. However, he's still kind of wheeled out now at this point, you know, whether it be after dinner speeches or kind of to sign shirts or to go on TV and chat. There, there is never anything about, you know, can we help Paul Gascoigne? It's what can Paul Gascoigne do for us? And, and I think for footballers in, at large after their careers, that's what they become. They become pundits or they become entertainment. Nowadays, I think that problems like that are recognised earlier and mechanisms are put in place to deal with them. I think back in those days, it was very much kind of left, deal with it yourself. No doubt about it. Teams are full of psychologists and support staff, etc. 
And I think that if it's recognized now in the modern day player, um, there's a lot more available to try and help them through difficult times like that. And, and I think with Paul Gascoigne, you know, I remember that glory period in, in 1990 where, you know, obviously England get to a World Cup semi-final against all the odds, you know, that England football team was not expected to do anything. And and it was one of the, it was the second World Cup I remember as a kid, really, as I started supporting United in 1985. So I remember the 86 World Cup in Mexico really clearly. But when Gaza did that and came home with his kind of uh, prosthetic belly on him coming off the plane, you know, and and people laughing and joking and, and proclaiming him as his hero. And and obviously going to Lazio then and, and having this career after his knee injury at Tottenham. Um, he was, again, very much like George Best, lauded as this, as this maverick hero uh, of his time. But what happened was that, you know, as his career wound down, he wasn't really offered the the opportunity or the help that he needed. He was still kind of peddled out as he was. And I still think it happens to this day. You know, no one's really kind of got hold of Paul Gascoigne and his issues. I'm sure people close to him have, but I'm talking about the the wider public. He's still seen as a figure of fun. And it dates back to that period in the 90s. And, you know, here we are 30 years on, and many people still have the same image in their head of Paul Gascoigne that they did in 1990 of him, you know, being booked in that World Cup semi-final, crying his eyes out. And that's what we still remember. We don't think about the, the 30 years since of uh, troubles and tribulations that he's had because it, it, it isn't entertaining enough, maybe. That's, uh, I think, the the bit of where you can join the dots and say why why people look at these footballers as they do. And in fact, as, as a United fan, I'm disappointed. There's a particular song that gets sung um, about, you know, that when you move on and when you lay to your rest, you're going to go out um, as the song as the song says, um, I won't use the exact words, but out boozing with George Best. And I, I kind of, I don't like that as a memory of George, to be honest. And, you know, it, it's 100% out of affection. I refuse to sing it because to me, you know, the tragedy of George Best, and there is a tra- tragedy here that we're talking about as well, is partly is part of that in terms of his drinking and, and his compulsion. Um, so the, the song, of course, is about going out on the drink with George Best. And, you know, that's what you would do, you know, in your last moments before you before you move on to the next part of the of heaven or whatever you want to call it and it's not something that i would want to prescribe to but it absolutely highlights i think maybe how football fans see their connections between their lifestyles as well and that of players like best especially the kind of pub culture that we were just talking about Uh, and that's why i think it is still acceptable to this day because there is a kind of harping back isn't there i think in football stadiums that maybe now it's a more sanitized environment football clubs when you actually go to games and maybe the singing isn't as wild as it once was in the eighties or whatnot. 
but it is still there. And that's something that a lot of people go to football prescribe to, and that's what they're going for. So yeah, it's a juxtaposition, isn't it? Where, as I said, I think academically, we do understand these things a lot more, but in terms of being a layman and looking at it from a, a base level, songs like that will still be sung because people believe they're just sung innocently and the, the full meaning of it isn't really what they're saying. There's no denying that the end of George Best's life is tragic. It's sad. It's a really sad story and one that's filled with great regret, I'm sure, for many people. But Barry expressed the desire during the interview to remember George for the player that he was on the pitch, for the joy that he brought people and the genuine inspiration that he gave to hundreds of thousands and probably millions of fans across the world. So I asked Rob and I asked Barry, what were their favourite memories of George Best? Oh, there, there are so many of them. But the, the things that spring to mind, that performance against Benfica, his goal in the European Cup final um, of 68. Uh... Oh, he's got a big chance! Oh, he must! He has! And Biff slamming up that mistake. Look at it from our other angle camera. Um, a goal against Sheffield United that gets shown time and time again when he takes the ball out wide and he beats about five players. Ball in the sun, but it was best... We picked up that kid flick. Driven wide. Yes! Six goals against Northampton, where he just served a six-week ban. So he wasn't match fit, yet he came on and scored six goals, which still stands as a record at United. And of course, George was the footballer of the year and the European footballer of the year in 1968. So those things all stand out. But I think that those lucky enough to watch him on a regular basis will probably tell you that almost every time when he got the ball, the stadium was a buzz because expect the unexpected. And then some of those great goals, lobbing Peter Bonetti, lobbing um, Pat Jennings, watching goals where guys are trying to cut him down at the knees and he beats them. And of course, a couple of iconic performances in the Northern Ireland shirt, it was said, particular game against Scotland in 1967 was his best ever game and one wishes that there was better footage of of those games because Mm. he was just so mesmerizing you know the other thing is when you watch the modern day game a guy gets a little tap on the knee he goes down as if somebody shot him between the eyes and he rolls around 10 times George never ever did that they used to kick lumps out of him. He'd get up and come back for more. If he stayed on the ground, it meant he was in pain. There was no question about it. There's two. There was one where playing for United, and I believe it's Pat Jennings in goal. I think it's Tottenham then. Or it might be Arsenal. I think it's Tottenham. And uh, and it comes out to best on the edge of the box. And there's a whole, you know, right. the whole team's in front of him. There's about 10 players right in front of him. And he just controls it on his thigh. And then he lobs the whole team over the top of Pat Jennings, who was obviously, you know, one of the best goalkeepers in the world at that time. Fitzpatrick. Best going in on it. Best! Oh, beautifully taken by Best! What a magnificent goal by Best! What a magnificent goal that destroyed that Tottenham defence. He started it off and then took it beautifully on his body 
round that Spurs defence and made it number two. And that was on 101 great goals and he just kind of turns away and he and this is why I think Eric Cantona has this kind of connection with United fans. Just put one hand in the air, turn to the, the fans, no real celebration, just that's what I do. And that's the goal that I remember. But the other one I remember as a kid was when he was playing in America and he gets the ball on the halfway line and does basically what Diego Maradona did to England in 1986, where he goes through about seven or eight players just weaving in and out and finishes the ball. And it's one of those wonder goals where you think, you know, that's something that I might never see in my life again. Ben, maneuvering unbelievably. Best still has it. I don't believe this move. He's oh! Oh! That's the greatest soccer goal I've oh! ever seen. Oh! You talk about individual effort. That is the greatest <laughs> soccer goal I've ever seen. Julie, you've oh, seen more man. than I have. Outstanding. Now he's going to talk to the official again. Outstanding. So as a kid, they were the things that, that reminded me of George Best scoring these outrageous goals, but doing it with this panache and with this kind of relaxed style, you know, like he was a maverick, but, you know, it, it looked effortless. There was no energy in what he did. But then at times he could just turn it on. And there's another goal I remember where where he, he kind of got the ball in midfield and, and this was for United. And he kind of went past four players, dummied the goalkeeper, went one side, slotted it away. And then kind of, again, hand in the air, just calm and relaxed. You can imagine that, can't you? In 1966, this 19-year-old boy bursting on the scene like a Rooney, you know, in that, like he did at that time and feeling that connection to this young kid in your football kit. You know, it would have been magical. And I can remember, obviously, elders talking to me about him and about the goals he scored. But he's just a, a figure that, will always represent Manchester United in terms of the style of the football club. And that goal, you know, I was talking about the lob, that's everything, you know, to me, it was just, it was effortless. It was brilliant. It was world-class. And it was the kind of thing that you always want to see on a football pitch. So thank you for listening. You've obviously been listening to Man Marking. You can find us on Twitter at Marking underscore Man. And don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. We do have a a group of other episodes similar to this where we we take a look back at uh, an example of mental ill health from football from yesteryear. We featured players such as uh, the Brazilian Gaincha, uh, Robin Friday, QPR legend Dave Clement. Um, So there's lots of those to check out our Regular episodes are interviews where we use football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Our last interview was with Steve McNulty. Our next episode is out on Monday is with former coach Pete Lowe. So you can check those out on, on all the usual places. That's Apple, Spotify, Acast, Google Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcasts from. Um, so thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. I must say, I'm kind of envious of those, of people who grew up with football at that time when somebody would just turn up that you didn't have any idea who he was. And you'd have that, who on earth is this fella? Because you just don't, even like, I mean, 
I'm a Trammy fan, and even on our level, it very rarely happens. Someone will have gone, oh, they've got a lad who plays that wide, who's really good. You know, he, yeah. you know, he was on Newcastle's books, but he, you know, he, he's now with these kind of thing. And and you just don't get it nowadays, do you? No, you don't. And uh, just to add on to what we were just saying there, you know, I've had dozens of people over the years who are older than you and me who who went to games in the 50s and the 60s and weren't Manchester United fans. And they've all said very, very similar things to me about George Best and said, you know, I didn't know football until the day Manchester United turned up with George Best and he ripped our team to shreds. You know, when we talk about the El Beatle game, the 5-1 at Benfica, Again, the, the the whole thing or there was that the Benfica team said they'd never seen anything like it until George Best stepped on their football pitch and destroyed them in front of their own fans on his own as a 19-year-old. And and you hear that re- repeated a lot through football, and I think this is why he has this iconic image because those stories have been passed down from the 50s and the 60s. That you know these football fans who would go and see very you know industrial-style football, you know in those days from the. 60s maybe onwards with the ball in the air to then this this guy turning up at Manchester United from Northern Ireland who put the ball on the deck and beat everyone on his own you know it is it's amazing I I feel blessed in the sense that I I saw Maradona play you know as a kid I saw you know other great players at United obviously we've had a, a whole load of them and you do remember them. I can remember every pass Paul Scholes ever made in our, in our midfield and, and it's burnt on my memory forever. But I can imagine that seeing George Best for that first time would have been something that was just incredibly special.